Now we're going to look together at Psalm 130 that we read a few minutes ago, and it uh, may say at the top of uh, that psalm in your Bible, as it does in mine, a song of ascents. Now of the 150 psalms, there are 15 songs of ascents, and these were specially written for the children of Israel when they went three times a year to special religious uh, ceremonies up in the capital city, Jerusalem. The first one was the Passover, where they remembered their deliverance from Egypt long before. The second one was called the Feast of Weeks, when they went up to Jerusalem at the beginning of of harvest time to thank God for uh, the evidence that things were growing in the fields and there were certain things ready to be gathered in. And then the third time was at the end of harvest called the Feast of Ingathering. And these were occasions of great joy and rejoicing. And I guess the, the children of Israel would have known these psalms by heart as they journeyed together as families and as groups from villages and towns, they would have rejoiced and sang them in praise to God together. Now, I don't know if it's, uh, it's right for a preacher to choose his favorite, but of those 15 psalms, this is my favorite one. And the reason that it's my favorite is because right in the middle of this psalm, it states what human beings need more than anything else in the whole of life. Now, for many people, their minds would immediately go to this stuff and think, well, yes, of course, it's money, isn't it? That's what I need more than anything else, and I need more of it, and when I get more of it, I'll need more of it still. And so many people are living their lives with that uh, conviction or that philosophy that what they need most in life is money. Well, listen to this quotation from a Puritan writer called Thomas Watson. And if you've ever read any of Thomas Watson's books, he was a master of the one-liner. Now, I don't mean he was a stand-up comedian. He wasn't. He was a pastor, and he was a writer. But uh, he just had a, a way of, just in one sentence, summing up something very, very important. And about money, he said, Riches can no more fill your heart and a triangle can fill a circle. So money is not what we need most. There is something far more important than money that we need. And other people would say, okay, if money's not the thing I need most of all, then it must be my health. And we've been thinking about that a little bit this morning. I don't know if you've ever heard the saying that sometimes people utter, they say, if you've got your health, you've got everything. And that, again, is what many people would believe about life. But there may well be those who are here this morning, and we know that our health is not 100% at all. And yet, if we're Christians, we understand that the Lord allows these things to happen for his own purposes, and we need the grace from him to accept that he always knows best and what he sends into our lives, not just what we consider the good things, but the bad things like ill health at times, he sends those for our good uh, as well. And uh, at those times, we need to trust him more and more. So no, health is important, but it's not the most important thing. And it's not what this psalm tells us is the most important thing. So what is it then? Is it promotion? 
Is it popularity? Is it a new car? Is it a bigger house? Is it romance? All these things are important uh, in life, but none of them are the most important of all. They're all transient things. They're all things that come into our lives and they go out of our lives. And, uh, uh, and that's how it is. But we need something that is not transient, that is lasting, something that will benefit us forever. And uh, the thing that this psalm talks about is this matter of forgiveness. And it's there in verse 4, more or less in the middle of the psalm, this lovely statement, but there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. That is the most valuable thing a human being can ever come to experience. It's the greatest blessing a human being can ever know. And the psalmist clearly knew that and knew where he needed to go to get it in order to receive forgiveness, in order for him to be forgiven, he knew where to go. Now, can I ask you this morning, do you know this experience of forgiveness? Do you yet know the blessing of having your sins forgiven by Almighty God? Well, we're going to think about this subject of forgiveness as we uh, work our way briefly through this psalm. Now, if you look at the very beginning of it, verse 1, you'll notice that the writer seems to be in a pretty sorry state. He says, out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. If we're down in the depths, we're in a pretty low place, aren't we? But, you know, that's the key in a sense. Because the writer of this psalm, he knew that he was down in the depths. He knew that he was far away from God. And he knew as well that he needed to get this sorted out. He needed to get his relationship with God sorted out. And he knew the one that he could turn to. And so he cries to God and he cries to God for mercy. And the rest of the psalm is really fleshing out that cry for mercy that the psalmist utters. There are a few things that we can particularly hone in on in this psalm. And the first one is that the psalmist makes this cry of recognition. Now, Psalm 130 is the sixth out of seven psalms that are known as penitential psalms. And that just means uh, people were writing who knew they were sinners, they knew they were, were right down in the dumps about their sin, if you like, and they turned back to God to receive his mercy and find the forgiveness that he gives. A little phrase that is not used now, nowadays, but, but once you perhaps hear it a lot, was to describe this man as one who sorrowed over sin. Sorrow over sin. That might seem a bit strange to us. What, what does that mean? Well, it basically describes a person who feels guilty, feels ashamed. They know that there are many things they've thought and said 
and done in their lives that have not just offended the people around them, but more seriously and more importantly than that, that have offended the one above them, the Almighty. And with that sense of guilt, with that sense of shame, comes a a gnawing desire that I must do something about this. And I wonder if you've ever felt like that. I wonder if you have been aware of your sinfulness. About four years ago now, I was with a colleague in the open air mission in the town of Stevenage, and I was preaching away, and two young women walked by, they were probably on their lunch break, and I said something like this as they were passing. I said, I'm sinful, and you two ladies, you're sinful as well. And one of them stopped, rigid, and she turned and came right up to me, and I thought, oh dear, what's going to happen now? And she said, did you just call me simple? And I said, no, I didn't. I called you sinful. And do you know what she said? Well, that's all right then. And she walked away. More offended to be thought simple than sinful. And being told that she was sinful, well, it was just like water off a duck's back. She, she wasn't bothered. She didn't care. It didn't affect her. But if we do take the time to stop and think about it, to be described and to know that we're sinful, not that we've, we've just done a few uh, things now and again or told one or two white lies in the past, but to know that actually our past is full of of sins, of wrongdoings, of offences against our creator. And I think one of the reasons that open-air preaching is so difficult today is because we're, we're urging people to realise something that they, they're totally unfamiliar with. And that is the fact that they are sinful. They think they're all right. And uh, to come to that conclusion, they just look around. And, you know, you can always find someone worse off than yourself. One of my colleagues years ago used to visit a prison near Bournemouth. And uh, he got speaking after one of the prison services to this murderer. And he'd heard the gospel message. And you know his response to it was, well, at least I'm not like the child abusers in the block over there. See, even a murderer can find people worse than himself, or he thinks he can. One of the, probably the biggest problems in our society today is people don't realise what they really are, what they're like inside, what they're like deep down, that things are not well. They're not well between them and God, and they need to face up to that. They need to be able to say, I need forgiveness. And I wonder if you've ever come to that point of realising that you need forgiveness and you need it more than anything else in the whole of life. Well, the second thing we can focus on in this psalm is in verse 4 because there's a a wonderful change here. Because now, instead of this, this cry of someone who is so down about the state of their heart, there's a cry of jubilation in verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared or that you may be served with, with reverent fear. 
You see, the psalmist knew that uh, his point where he was up to verse 3. Lord, if you should mark iniquity, who could stand? Lord, if you took a, a list of all that I've done wrong, what hope would I have? But he's able to remind himself, but with you there is forgiveness. The realization of his sin is thankfully not the end of the story because he declares the God he knew the Lord to be. Yes, one who is holy and he hates our sin, but one who is also merciful and is willing to forgive all of our sin. And surely this little statement is a wonderful statement. But there is forgiveness with you. It's not a question, is it? He's not saying, Lord, is there forgiveness with you? After all, I know I've done all this wrong in my life. Could you possibly forgive me? Could you possibly be that merciful to a wretch like me that you could forgive even me? No, it's not a question. It's a statement. This is something he knew that was true about the Lord. There is forgiveness with you. He's speaking with great confidence. Dear friends, if you're not a Christian here this morning, you can have that confidence. However rotten you may feel inside, there is forgiveness even for you. He's willing to wash away your sin through what Jesus did upon the cross. He's willing to wipe your record clean. Yes, there's a sense in which God does mark all our iniquities. He does uh, know every single wrong thing that we've done in our lives. But he's willing to take that record and clean it completely so that we're spotless in his sight when we receive that forgiveness it can be very uncomfortable for someone to be challenged about their sin and be told that they are sinners before God and someone said it's a little bit like a a bug uh, coming out Uh, where there is a bright light shining, say, on a table. As soon as that light is switched on, the bug scurries away and wants to be back in the darkness. Well, I don't want to uh, upset anyone by saying that perhaps you're just like a little bug, but it's a, a very good analogy because sometimes when people are challenged about their sin they want to scurry away and that's why I'm convinced that sometimes in the open air uh, when people come past our preaching and they hear what's being said their footsteps quicken and they can't get away fast enough and sometimes even and I hope this won't happen here this morning but sometimes even people will get up in a church service and they'll walk out I think that's only ever happened to me twice in about 30 years of preaching, so please don't make it a third time uh, this morning. But people can be so offended. Me? Is saying that about me? How dare he? What right has he got to say that? But sometimes the things that are the hardest to hear are the things that are the most important to hear, and you can't get more important than facing up to the fact that it's not just other people that need to be forgiven their sin. I do. Every single one of us does. 
So let's be encouraged. And if we are already Christians this morning, then what a cause for rejoicing to be reminded that there is forgiveness, that we have been forgiven. How wonderful is that? That we know what it is to be made clean of our sin and be made right with God. Well, moving on to verses 5 and 6, we now come to a cry of expectation. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I do hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who watch for the morning. Yes, more than those who watch for the morning. The psalmist demonstrates a level of patience as he seeks God's forgiveness. He's waiting, and he's waiting expectantly. As low as as he's felt, he knows that forgiveness is coming. And there's an important lesson for us here. Yes, the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God is very merciful. And how amazing about him that that is true. But he is not at our beck and call. We must never think of him like that. And I've met people who've very casually said something, oh yeah, I can turn to him at any time. And it's clear that they don't see and don't realize what serious issues that these really are. You see, I mention this particularly because there may be uh, someone here and uh, maybe you've become very concerned about your sin and maybe you would even say, I have cried out, but nothing seems to have happened. A couple of months ago, I was in in Luton for the regular Thursday open-air meeting there, and a young man called Luke stood to listen for a while, and we got into conversation, and uh, we got to a point where he said that he had cried out to God uh, for help. He was in a desperate state in his life. And he had a friend with him who hadn't joined in the conversation at all. He just stood there silently. I I never got his name. But the friend suddenly piped up. When Luke said, I've prayed and nothing happened, the friend said, well, Luke, you know what you've got to do, don't you? You've got to keep on praying. And, you know, sometimes God wants to see that from us. He wants to know that we really mean it. Let me give you a little illustration of that. When my children were, uh, were younger, and the youngest is now 15, but when they were little, and it might be approaching one of their birthdays, one of them would say, oh, Dad, I want such and such for my birthday. And I wouldn't commit myself, uh, yes or no, to the particular present. What I used to do was just wait. And if over the next few weeks endlessly they kept coming and said dad you do remember don't you what I want for my birthday I'd know that they really really wanted it but if they never mentioned it again I'd know that it it was not really important to them at all and it just may be that that is how God deals with us he doesn't mess about with us but he wants to know how serious are you about this How important is this matter of having your sins forgiven? And so maybe he requires patience of someone who is seeking him to keep on asking and so that he knows that we we really do recognize our need 
of that forgiveness. And then fourthly, there is in verses 7 and 8 a cry of redemption. And notice that there's a change uh, in uh, how he's speaking here. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is mercy, and with him is abundant redemption, and he shall redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Now up to this point, verses 1 through to verse 6, the psalmist had been praying. The psalmist had been talking to the Lord. But in these last two verses, he's not talking to the Lord. He's now, instead of looking upward, he's looking outward. And he's speaking to the people of the land of Israel. Now, the beginning of the psalm doesn't tell us the name of the writer. Many of the psalms were written by King David. And Bible scholars think that the Songs of Ascents were written by King David. And that would make perfect sense here, because the king would be really the only person who would have the ear of the whole land, who'd be able to make a proclamation and everyone would get to find out about it. And the writer, whether it's David or not, is speaking now to the whole country. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. He's, in effect, he's making this public declaration. He said, look, look, friends, you have every reason to trust in the Lord. He loves you. He's willing to be merciful and gracious to you. And his love for you can be seen, seen in what he has done to secure your salvation. But you might say, but hang on a minute. He is down in the depths. He's feeling absolutely rotten about himself. But yes, what a marvelous thing it is that even a person in that state can be conscious that God is still gracious and still loving and still merciful. Back in Genesis chapter 39, it says of Joseph when he was locked up in uh, the the prison for a crime he hadn't committed. It says, but the Lord was with him and showed him steadfast love. Maybe there's someone here this morning and you feel locked in the prison of your sin, unable to escape. Well, remember this, that God loves even the very worst of sinners. And he's done something to prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt. And what has God done? Well, it seems to hinge on the word the psalmist uses in, uh, in verse 7 and then again in verse 8, the word redeem or the word redemption. Now, we might say that that's a, a pretty old-fashioned word. It's not one that we use uh, very uh, much today. But actually... Redemption is going on in our towns and cities an awful lot. I know it goes on in Dunstable because on our high street we have a shop called Cash Converters. And one of the purposes of Cash Converters is if you're on hard times, uh, really short of cash, you can go in and you can take something, let's say it's a ring that might be quite precious to you, and uh, the person behind the counter will look at it and see what it's worth, and they will, they will in effect give you some money and they will keep hold of the ring. And the hope is that the person who is, uh, is hard up in the 
course of time, maybe a few months later, has saved a bit of money, is able to go back to what's called a, the pawn shop, and they will redeem that ring. They can buy it back. And that's all it means. Redemption is to, to means to buy something back. And that word so wonderfully sums up what the Lord Jesus did upon the cross. He paid for our sin. Our forgiveness that we need has been paid for by the Lord Jesus in the sacrifice of himself on the cross. We've got nothing to pay to be forgiven. We can't ever deserve to be forgiven. All we can do is trust in God's mercy for us to be forgiven. His mercy that was so wonderfully demonstrated when the Lord Jesus allowed himself to be sacrificed upon the cross to pay for all of our sin. There's a lovely verse that sums it up in Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 7. And he says of Jesus, in him, and he's writing to Christians, people who have already known this blessing, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Through that redeeming work of Jesus, sinners even like us, can be wonderfully forgiven of all of our sin. We're going to close our service in a minute by singing a lovely hymn that begins with the words, Come let us sing of a wonderful love. Now that hymn was written about 150 years ago for a Sunday school class in Manchester. But the words are not just relevant for children, are they? They're relevant for adults as well. And they're not just relevant for people up north. They're relevant for us down here as well. And one of the verses says this. Jesus the Savior, this gospel to tell, joyfully came. Came with the helpless and hopeless to dwell. Sharing their sorrow and shame. Seeking the lost. Saving, redeeming at measureless cost. The writer of those words was a man called Robert Walmsley. And what he wrote there is spot on, isn't it? The cost that Jesus was willing to pay in order for the likes of us to be forgiven is measureless. It can't be counted. It can't be calculated. What he was willing to go for so that we could truly know what it is to be forgiven. Well, if you've never responded uh, to the Lord Jesus before, won't you do that to him today? Won't you have the wisdom to own up to your sin, to confess your sin to God and ask him for the thing that you need most in your life, more than anything else, the need to be forgiven. And when you pray to him and come to experience that forgiveness, oh, what a joy you will have in your heart and mind and soul. There's no greater blessing in this world than to be forgiven. And Jesus is the one, the only one, who is able to give us that complete forgiveness. Amen. Let's just pray together. Lord, please help us all to realize just how serious and how important these issues are 
And please may each one of us in this room, and we pray for the Sunday school teachers and we pray for the boys and girls as well, Lord, may all of us know this wonderful experience of having all of our terrible sins washed completely away so that we can say that we have forgiveness and we can know that wonderful blessing of being right with you, right with you in this life and right with you in the life to come as well. Please hear us, O Lord, for Jesus' sake. Amen.